Welcome to How to Ruin Your Own Reputation, the show where I talk to people who either have unusual jobs or are living lives that people just don't quite understand. My guest today definitely fits into the unique job category. Jonathan Pritchard has spent over 18 years traveling the world as a mentalist. A mentalist is an entertainer who can apparently read minds, look into the future, do instant hypnosis, and that led him to over 19,000 appearances at Universal Studios and even an appearance on America's Got Talent. But it was discovering how these skills can be used in the corporate world that made Jonathan a force as a consultant and a speaker for some of the major corporations in the world. Because I would assume that there's a similar type of psychological manipulation in business as there is in magic. Well, let's get to this. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to How to Ring Your Own Reputation. Hi there. Thanks for having me with the intro like that. I've got a lot to live up to. Here we go. <laughs> well, my first question is, okay, so I'm picturing your little kid and you're in school and the teacher says, what do you want to be when you grow up? I, did you say a mentalist? <laughs> Not really. It, <laughs> I, I always wanted to be an artist. And I grew up tracing comic books and, and all that kind of stuff. But those two were the only two things I've been interested in my whole life, really, because the magic started when I was about five or six and the drawing was when I was five or six. So those have been the two mainstays through my whole life. So that was always kind of fun when people would ask, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And like, I'll be a magician. And, and then they go, okay, but you're going to go to college, right? I'm like, yeah, for sure. I'm going to go to college. And they go, all right, what do you want to get your degree in? Painting. Let, you know, I got to have a fallback. I'll be an artist. So watching people just try to process this, like, but no kid, like for reals, the, what's the right. boring job you're going to do? And I'm like, I refuse. And yeah, I, I just, <laughs> I've escaped, I've escaped that, that path. So now it's, it was magic though, when you were little, right? Cause it wasn't really like growing up. I remember, I remember my older brother having a magic set and it came with like the little fuzzy bunny things and a wand, <laughs> and exactly. everyone have it. but, but you continued with it. Right. But was right. it, so was it, what, what was it? Did you see magicians on TV? Like what was it that made you go, okay, no, this is, this isn't just a party trick. Like this is something I really interested in. Yeah. The, it, it was a whole bunch of stuff I think being weird helped that was that a big part of it yeah but my, my my dad got me a magic kit for Christmas or my birthday one year like when I was six and to hear him tell it he said it was a it was a cheap thing I I figured it would wind up in the trash in a couple of days but it's months later and you're still doing this stuff you, you just took to it. I was like, oh, okay. So then I, I just kept playing with it. And mm. then there would be a magician on the Carson show. Like that's how old I am is back when I was six or seven, Johnny Carson was still on the air. Right. So then if there was a magician on the Carson show, like Lance Burton, mm -hmm. they would let me stay up to watch the the magician wow. and, and I remember watching Lance Burton on the Carson show and going wait a minute that's cool so this is like a, a thing you could actually you could actually get on tv doing okay that's really neat and then from there 
when I was in elementary school, junior high, whatever, after school, the bus would drop me off near my mom's where, where she worked at a law office. Right across the street was the library. So after school from three until five, I had two hours to kill. I would just be at the library and I read every single magic book that they had 50 times over and the magic books are right by the art books. So mm -hmm. I would just sit down with a stack of here are the Renaissance painters and here's Rococo painters and here's a, an atlas of artists throughout history. And I just read magic books and art books every day, two hours a day after school. And that just continued. And then, yeah, I was, I was that weird kid in school that did magic tricks. You're like, oh yeah, there's Jonathan. He does magic and that kind of thing. <laughs> like in ninth grade, I won the junior high talent show and it went to the regionals and I tried doing something that I'd never practiced before. And it was horrific. And that was a, a learning experience that, yeah, you can, you can get booed. That that's fun. But I, I've been booed by 2000 people like it's it's been it's been a journey. That's for sure. But it didn't deter you. Was that your first time performing in the ninth grade? Was that the first time you were up in front of like a decent amount of people? Not not really. Actually, my first my first professional gig was around age 13 and I got paid like 50 bucks to go do magic at the mall dressed up as an elf because the the guy that taught me how to juggle fire when I was 13 that summer had the gig at the mall as the older elf so I I was his lackey so I, I got dressed up as an elf and I would do magic tricks and juggle and he helped Santa appear at the mall for family photos, that kind of a thing. So getting to work with him, thinking back on it, very low stakes, very <laughs> low stakes kind of kind of situation. But you know, it, it's it's kind of fun, right? You got to be really confident and really love magic to be 13 year old boy and dress up as an elf and go and do magic at the mall. Like that's, that's kudos to you. I, well, part of it was, I didn't know I should be embarrassed <laughs> because my, my parents are fantastic. They, they were supportive through the whole thing. And my mentor Randall is wonderful and we're still in each other's lives kind of a thing. So it, it's, it's serious business, right? Because I've been around people who this is who they are. This is the expression of their life's work. And we mm -hmm. take this seriously. Helping people have fun and to help them not have to think about their problems for just five minutes. People pay a lot of money for that because they're not going to get that anywhere else. So being able to be a live performer has always been a kind of a serious business and dressing up as an elf is a way to cut through the standard social patterns of, I need to dress like a normal person. I need to act like this normal person in the box. And when you wear the costume, 
you're now embodying a different character that frees you up from the constraints of who I think I need to be in the mind of my friends and family and other people. So there's some really deep, like, psychology at work for even the seeming simple, lighthearted, oh, silly kind of a thing. It's deeply rooted in shamanistic traditions and all that kind of stuff comes along. But most people, oh, look at the silly elf. Isn't that fun? And but isn't that, that's when you know you're doing a good job, right? Isn't that the whole thing? Is that when you're doing something that puts so much work into it and so much thought into it, but to people watching it, it seems, oh my God, that's so easy. Anyone could do it. That's when you know you're doing it right. Right. And that's, that's why, honestly, my favorite word is sprezzatura, which is doing something that is incredibly difficult but making it look like you're almost bored because it's so easy. It's that studied carelessness of high skill execution of something that is really difficult. I've basically had four or five lifetimes worth to master four or five different things. And I've just spent all those hours figuring out how people work, how their decisions, how to influence them and the difference between influence and persuasion and manipulation and coercion because they're all kind of the same family but there are some very big differences between those and why one of my mentors James Randi would say that we magicians are the only honest liars we'll tell you we're going to lie to you then we do it and that's what makes it okay But all of those techniques and methods that magicians use, there are people that use it outside the context of a magic show. And that's how you get Ponzi schemes and con artists and all these tech founders that promise that their product works, but it's all just an elaborate magic show that convinces Mm -hmm. investors that, oh, this will be the next wave of the future. And then billions of dollars get poured in and then they yank it out. Like all of that, our magic principles just being well, put to what, use, not right. Yeah, well, for sure. And that's why I was like, I want to talk about that because it, it's a skill that can be used for good or evil, right? It all depends on your intention. But something you said, oh, I really want to jump on that when you said that you're the only honest liars because even in your bio and, and what I said at the beginning, when I said a mentalist can apparently read your mind, that's huge. And that's what I love because I, I love the whole mentalist thing and I've watched a bunch and I've watched a bunch of you and a bunch bunch of other ones and what I find I think what I find endearing about that is is every time there is a trick done they're not saying yes I read your mind it actually sounds like like it there's a lot of subliminal messages that come into it where they'll like I've seen some people say you know pick a number and they pick nine and then they say do you notice the painting behind me is there's a big like they say it and I find that I like that so much more because that's more interesting to me because it's like, how did I, I didn't even, what did, but it, it does. It's also frightening because you can at times, and I still can't figure this out, a mentalist. So someone who's saying, no, I'm not really reading your mind, can say, think of somebody from your past, let's say. And then just looking at them, they do come up with the name and I'm like, okay, but they're, they're, they're not saying with a psychic or a quote unquote psychic We'll do the same thing, but say, oh, I'm seeing it or I'm here. So it, it's kind of the same 
thing. And I don't know how it's done, but I find it so interesting. And I find it more interesting because you're saying, no, there's, I, there's a way to do it. There's a way that right. there, there are skills. And, and that to me is the most interesting part of it. Can anybody okay. learn how to do it? Or is it, I mean, it obviously takes years and years and years and years. Yeah, this, remember that you asked to go down this rabbit hole. So <laughs> here, here we go. Some, some of the historical context that'll help us kind of explain that difference between psychics and mentalists is that in the late 1800s, there was a period of time where the third most popular religion in America was spiritualism and nobody knows about it. And spiritualism was characterized by the core belief that not only could we talk to the dead, we could compel the dead to talk to us. And therefore, if you were able to reach across to the other side, then you would have access to the wisdom and knowledge and insight of the great beyond and infinity, rather than our trapped in our mere mortal coil, miserable mortal lives. Okay. So for a while, these spiritualists were having seances, and it was more a church service than it was, let's all hold hands around the table and then the candles start flickering. <laughs> because when you think of a seance, what you're thinking of is the Hollywood representation of, we got to make this look more jazzy. We got we to gotta jazz this up. <laughs> But really, it's a religious ceremony where you're trying to talk to grandma. Grandma's not scary. I want to talk to her. So these spiritualists claimed to be able to make all this stuff happen. And then it becomes the third most popular religion. And it fits in if you're Catholic. Okay, cool. You're a spiritualist Catholic if you're bat whatever. So it's easy to fit in. <laughs> to the predominant religions. Okay, cool. It's it's megastar level kind of thing. People were making millions of dollars because who doesn't want to talk to their relative? I would love to talk to my grandma, to my grandpa, both sets. I would love to talk to them just one more time. And what wouldn't you give to make that happen? Yeah. So these performers are claiming to be able to talk to the other side and creating these very real demonstrations that are super convincing. Well, these people called magicians are watching what's going on and then they're going, holy cow, they're using magic tricks. Wow. Oof. These, wow, that's really clever. So then magicians start putting on, for entertainment purposes, very similar experiences, but we're magicians. We're not saying that these folks are fake. We're just saying we're not the real deal and we can do it better than them because we've got show <laughs> polish. We've got showbiz experience and we're a lot more entertaining then let's yeah. sing a bunch of hymns and then, hey, look at that tambourine rattled. Your grandma's here. She loves you. <laughs> so then there was that, that shift because the magicians and the vaudeville performers 
recognized, boy, this is really popular. We could get really popular doing this thing and we're better showmen. Awesome. So then that marriage of magic and that kind of great beyondness is the birthplace of mentalism. And it's about the same time that radio comes around. And you know what? We've got this radio that can tune into the signal that is everywhere and nowhere, and it's passing through us. But with this special radio, we can hear the voice of, of people hundreds of miles away. You know, it, it could make sense that these spirits could talk to us, and we're attuned to hearing them. So the technology of the day made it very logical that, you know what, maybe we could talk to these people. Mm-hmm. So is all that stuff happening at the end of the 1800s, and after the Revolutionary War, one in five people died. So you knew somebody who died or knew somebody who knew somebody who died in the great war. So of course, everybody wants to talk to their, their dead relatives. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's the birthplace of mentalism. So it started off as I can talk to the spirits and we're write down the name of somebody that is no longer with us, write down the names of some of your friends who are still alive and well, and I will divine the the spirit one hey isn't that the correct one amazing and then in 1930s when there was more research into well let's treat this scientifically and parapsychology and mind-to-mind communication and telepathy that kind of stuff jb ryan at duke university was was doing experiments testing those kinds of claims of being able to predict the future remote viewing that kind of stuff and then in kind of the 70s late 70s it went from this is scientific telepathy to well we haven't really seen a lot of science bear that out so what what's a better way to present these experiences Oh, it's all influence and nonverbal communication and body language reading. And then that's when that framing kind of came true. Okay, so then that became the predominant way to present these experiences is, oh, you didn't notice the big painting that had a big number nine on it. And that's what influenced you to say that nine. I'm going to be straight with you. That's just as real as I could talk to dead people but it's an easier sell to the audience. Oh, so that's not real? That's not what they're doing? They're, <laughs> those methods are real, but not in the direction you think they are. Because if I'm being brought in as the big time performer for an event that's cost a million dollars for the organizers, you better get that right. And if right. you were leaving it up to chance that this person was perceptive enough to notice the nine, there are opportunities where you build into the structure of your show the chance to have those kinds of, it just so happened to be a miracle. How do you explain that? You're creating the right conditions for that to happen. And if it does happen, it's a miracle. Good luck, skeptics. I'm, I'm amazing. And if it doesn't happen, nobody, nobody knows. You don't call out the nine. And nobody ever puts two and two together that it was supposed to be a thing. 
because you're seeing it for the first time. I'm the one that's architected this whole thing. So the body language reading comes into play for me to know who to invite up on stage. Okay. Because, because I've been through my show thousands of times and I have thousands of data points of experience Oof. to know somebody who's sitting here like this not gonna work. probably not going to be a good person to bring up on stage. But them sitting here with their arms folded doesn't tell me the name of their goldfish when they were seven years old. So the body language reading is just as made up as I can talk to dead people. <laughs> because let's, we're, let's break this down. Because it's all predicated on faulty logic. The belief is looking up into the left always means this thing. Looking up into the right always means this thing. Right. There are no universal human expressions. Mm. Oh, a smile always means that you're happy. No, it might mean that you're trying to talk that dog down from attacking right. you. Right. Oh, crying means you're always sad. I cried at my wedding. Right. There are no universal human displays of emotion that if you see this, it always means that. Yeah. So that's, that's the grift that's being sold within the framework of, I'm going to be lying to you. And a lot of it is very, very close to being true, but it is not true in the way that it's being presented it's true in a completely different direction, like me picking the right, the right participant, but everything else is rock solid. I know a hundred percent it's going how? to work. How, how, Because, because we are prediction making creatures. Okay. And I know how that machine works. And then I build experiences that get your prediction machine to predict the wrong thing. So the here's the secret to every single magic trick, mind reading thing, everything you've ever seen okay. is the mentalist creates a context for the audience to make logical assumptions that are later shown to not be true. That's it. And one of the ways to do that is, oh, called lying. Because <laughs> I'm doing something that you don't see. I'm saying something that is not true, but the things that are the most powerful are the lies that I let you tell yourself, but I never say. Oof. I just let you come to that wrong conclusion and you'll believe yourself way more than anything I said. So magicians, we really tried not to lie much at all. So in the words that I say, 99.9% .9 of them are absolutely 100% correct and true. But I'm saying them in a way that help you believe something that is not true. And then you know, no, I know he never touched that thing. I was watching. So I, it was the weirdest thing getting used to it. But after shows, people will come up and say, you know, when you did that thing that you were absolutely not capable of doing and you never have ever done in your life, but I saw you do it, that was cool. 
I'm like, <laughs> where, you, where you put I, it that way? <laughs> yeah, I was like, man, I wish I could do that. Like, that that wow. would be even. And they know for a fact that they saw me do that amazing thing that I helped them believe they saw, but never really happened. Wow. See, that sounds even more complicated. Like, that sounds much more complicated. Exactly. <laughs> it really is. It is way more complicated because we all need to understand the cause and effect of everything that is happening. If random stuff happened, it would freak us out and we we wouldn't go outside anymore. Like if yeah. if imagine if the sidewalk turned into liquid cement every once in a while. How freaky that would be, right? right. So we we need our patterns of cause and effect to work. So if I can feed you the answer, you're not going to look for the answer anymore. Okay, but how do you do, uh, getting specific, because I, I, it would uh -huh. bug me if I didn't ask. Yeah. So specifically with things like, think of somebody from your past and somebody mm -hmm. can just look at you and come mm -hmm. up with that name. How, how right. do you do that though? Nobody does that. That's impossible. Okay. I can create the experience where you believe that's what happened. Oh, okay. And so I can make it look super fair that there is no room for trickery at all. But Jeez, in making okay. it look fair is how you sneak the trickery in. We're going to so do this under you... test conditions. We're going right. to lock it in an envelope. All of that, we're going to make this fair is what opens the door to me being sneaky about it. You're dangerous. Like that sounds like real, like honestly. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. Though, it, when you think that's that going back to what I said about good or evil, I mean, that, right. that's. And, terrifying. and that's why the, the surface level, oh, he's really good at, at reading body language is the top layer of it. But when you understand how to architect an entire experience that allows an entire audience of a thousand people to come to the exact same wrong conclusion. Right. It's, wow. it's a much deeper process at play that lets the top level deception of, oh, he's reading body language. And that's still amazing. But it, that's just the top of the iceberg of what that kind of nonlinear problem solving and experience design can create. So I think about a, a story I use, like a, a way of understanding this. Imagine your mind is a computer and your conscious mind is the RAM. It's where it's the short-term memory kind of a thing. Okay. You can only attend to so much. There's only so much that your RAM can hold on to. And most people hunt and peck type with the, their computer of their mind. And then there are some people who learn keyboard shortcuts. Control C, Control V for copy and paste. Oh, right. Command Tab to switch applications. If you learn some of those keyboard shortcuts to people who hunt and peck, and type it and use the mouse, they're going, holy cow, this, this guy's amazing. He's so fast. How He can do so much. And then you're a hacker who knows how to program and mm -hmm. to write a completely new computer program 
you can now get somebody else's computer to run programs that they don't even know are happening. So being a mentalist is kind of like having administrative access to everybody's computer to make <laughs> it run programs that you've written that they don't even understand that that's possible. Holy. So when was it that you really, because this totally makes sense now. I get the, how it can segue into the whole business thing. So when was it that you went, wait a, wait a second, like I could use this in the yeah. business corporate world. When, when did that switch come? Not, not that long ago, like within the past 10 years or so, because it was one of those I've been doing it and I'm, it's, it's really difficult to tickle yourself, right? You're, you're right. too close to it. It, it yeah. doesn't, doesn't really work. So I had, I've traveled the world as an entertainer. I grew up about an hour east of here in a single wide trailer, right? Like had hand-me-down clothes from the church. Like we didn't have a lot of money growing up. How in the world do you start there and then wind up as a world traveling entertainer performer guy? So all the applied psychology that I was using on stage to make the show work, I realized I had been using in my own life to get the show to work. I started to appreciate that my perspective might be of use and value to other people who didn't grow up with the same experiences, the same mentors, that kind of thing. And then I was interested in getting my business better it's like, I want to, I want to run a better shop. I want to, I want to be, you know, I want to help more people kind of a thing. So I start reading business books and a lot of them claim to understand the psychology of sales, the psychology of marketing, the psychology of branding, the psychology of this, of that. I'm like, wait a minute. I know this better than them. And I can prove it on stage in front of 3000 people. And they're just talking about stories about people that never existed in the first place, trying to communicate this idea when I can walk people through the experience of that idea, mm. I'm going to eat their lunch. Mm. So that's when I started working as a corporate consultant because I truly, deeply, 100% believe that business is one of the best ways to help the world be a better place because it's a sustainable way to provide more value for less cost, which helps everybody at the company, every employee, the employee's families, the clients get a great product at lower price. And now they've got more money to take care of their families and the CEO benefits when the company is profitable. At a first and second order magnitude kind of a way, help that business be better at its job. So if I can help the sales team land one more deal for that business, that helps thousands of people. So is that your, is that what you do? You go in and you help, you help the sales, do you help? I've also seen where you talk about even helping people at a level of negotiating salaries going in for a job or right. I mean, there's so many, you are as, as doesn't matter what your business is, you're still dealing with people. Anywhere your business deals with people, being a better communicator can help you. 
right? And reading people helps. And like exactly. what I what I what I'm picturing though, just now as you're saying this, I'm picturing people going through you know your courses and, and listening to you and somebody being on sort of the sales part of it, somebody being on the sort of purchasing part of it. And if knowing what they know, if it kind of cancels each other out or <laughs> if it's like yep. a stalemate or <laughs> right, like, right. Well, that's how that works. Well, that, well that's that's what I like about it is that it's less adversarial because as a magician, the main way people know how to enjoy magic is I'm going to get them. I'm going to figure this out. Ah, I'm going to get you. And then the magician's like, you're never going to catch me. And now it's a cat and mouse game. Whereas with mentalism, the, we're talking, we're communicating. This won't work if you don't want it to. I can't just reach into your mind and pull the secrets out. You have to want this to work for this to work. And we're working together for a shared fun experience. Right. So yeah that, yeah, that makes sense. Because even if it is a, a buying selling thing, ultimately you want the same thing. I want what exactly. you're selling and you want to sell me what I want. So it's just a matter of getting there where you're both right. happy. Right. right, right. Cool. Well, I've seen, I've watched some of your videos and, and I think what's cool too is that people seem to, even in a corporate situation, are having fun. And I think that that's, that's the thing too. Because again, I think anything, somebody like me who's really not business-minded at all, it seems so serious and right. intimidating. But then when you take that away and you show that it is at the, at the really the foundation of it, it's just people, right. that it doesn't have to be so scary. And, and especially, again, going into a job interview situation. And knowing the right questions to ask and, and knowing how to answer certain things. I mean, that's that's half the battle right there. I mean, if you can have that confidence before you can walk into any situation right? in a, in a business thing, if you can walk in feeling confident, because I think that's what you're doing too, is you're just, you're giving people confidence in how to right. how to deal with other people. And that's, that's huge. Exactly. And it's everything really. And the, the story that I use to kind of get that across too is, I want my pilot to be so competent and confident that he's almost bored with my life <laughs> right. in his hands. Mm. And that's why I call it high stake business. Sales, negotiation, no matter what you're selling, your business is high stakes for you. And I want you to be able to perform at a high level, even when it's the highest stake game you've ever played that you do a good job because you know walking out for national tv i don't have control over where the cameras are i don't have control over how the producers are going to present me to the world i don't have control over where the editors are going to cut to the wrong True. angle and show everything that how it's happening right so it's a really high stake opportunity where oh he's on national tv he must be good so it's worth it's worth it to the career to go into this high stake environment and you can't be freaked out about it. Is there you got to know your stuff. Is there one part of it that you prefer to the other? Like going out on stage and performing just for a crowd that came out to see a fun magic show or the business side? Do you get more pleasure out of one side versus the other? Or is it just was it just time to kind of move from one to the other? It's it's both because I still do both, weirdly. Think, think of it like a slider of entertainment and education. Where do you need that slider? Because even if somebody is booking me just, just as a performer, 
I still want that time that I spend with my audience to stay with them and use that opportunity to communicate the idea that, you know what, maybe you are capable of doing a lot more than you currently believe yourself to be able to do. So that's the fundamental message of my show, even if it's just the entertainment, it still has the, the heart of the message is, I'm just some dude from the mountains of North Carolina that learned how to do this weird stuff. I wasn't born with a gift. This is not a, a gift from the universe. <laughs> I just have worked at this to make it look easy. So you don't get off the hook of saying, well, it's easy for him because he must have grown up with rich parents or whatever your excuse is, it's not real. Yeah. Does everyone take you when they want to go buy a car or when they want to go to people? Are you like the magic weapon? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, and I love it. I love negotiating. So what most people are like, oh, this is icky. I hate it. I, mm -hmm. I just want it to be done. I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, That's let's nice. go. And my favorite part about it is to be super good friends with the person that I just beat up for a week <laughs> of doing negotiations. And to me, that's the mark of doing it right. So yeah, I just, I love, love, love negotiating and but, but it does, it, Again, it really is though your intent because I'm, I'm listening and, and yeah, it's fun to, to get the deal. And to, but you're having a good time also because you're seeing both people come out of it and go, oh, you know what, that worked. That worked for me. And now you also, you built connections on both sides, which is great because you're not burning any bridges. I got to ask you, did you ever at any point in all the years you've been doing this, ever think about, you know, going to Vegas or doing something with it that wasn't on the up and up? Was there ever the temptation? I'm sure you've seen it around you and you wanted to call it out, but have you ever oh, yeah. a little? Oh yeah. There, there was a time where I wanted to be a card counter and and I was like, you know what? That would be fun. That'd be fun. But being a card counter gets you about a one and a half percent advantage. And you're already at a disadvantage because the house wins kind of a thing. So that right. one and a half percent against a bigger advantage that the house has, you're still not coming out ahead all that much. And then I, I thought through and I was like, I'll have to be around people that smoke a lot, a lot of alcoholics depressed people for a, a very, very half a percent it, it advantage, or I can start my own consulting business where <laughs> there is no up, like upper limit to the advantage I could have for myself. I'll, I'll go do that. And also Vegas employs people like me to make sure mm. people like me can't be <laughs> me. I love that. That's so well, I was going to say too, I, I, that's the thing also is that it must be very, very difficult to even kind of get one over on you or for, I mean, that you must, so you, I'm sure you can see yep. it coming a mile away and you're kind of thinking, all right, do your best. Right. Good right. Luck. It, in, in a majority of cases, yes. In some cases, no, because believing you're impervious is one of the best ways to get one over on somebody because there was a, a con artist. Oh, I can't remember his name. But he, he conned Pone out of tens of thousands yeah. of dollars. Risky. Very risky. High risk, <laughs> very high reward. But then Al Capone's not going to tell everybody that he just got duped, mm. right? So believing that you're too smart to be fooled 
is square one for getting fooled very badly, which is my mentor, James Randi. His whole thing was scientists who are doing research into parapsychology and that kind of a stuff. You need a magician on your team to identify when you're being lied to and tricked. And not a single scientist took him up on it. They were saying, mm -hmm. we're scientists. We know how to do this. We don't need a children's entertainer to help us do this. We don't and, need a clown. Right. And, and hijinks ensued because wow. there were people that specifically went in just to mess with the scientists and to wow. show them that they're not that smart. <laughs> Jeez. You know, I yeah. think a really, for me, a really big part of your message is going back to the very, very beginning when you knew from very little what you wanted. And it was, you know, your, your primary thing was artistic and then your backup plan was artistic. <laughs> I mean, you said, I want to do magic, but you had no idea when you were saying, I want to do magic, that you were going to work for these major corporations. Like that, that wasn't in your head. Your head was, right. I'm going to do this because then 20 years from now, I'm going to be working for major corporations doing consulting. That wasn't no. on your, that was, no. but because no. you just stuck with what you knew you wanted to do, there's a possibility that we don't even know exist yet. And I really believe in that. I think if you really do, I'm not saying, listen, I, I'm not somebody, if you do what you love, you'll end up getting paid. That hasn't, I don't know. But no. I will say at least, at least be open to the fact that we don't know. So anyone who tells you, that's not going to take you anywhere. They right. don't know that. Right. It, they yeah. have, we have no idea, just like in life, what one thing is going to take, where it's going to go. And so I think right. for me, the, the biggest part of your message is that, is that go with what, what talks to you, what, what makes your heart sing, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and see, and see where it takes you because it's the possibilities can't, can and it doesn't matter where you're starting from because you have no right. idea where you're going to go. I want to say two things to, to that point, which is one, the, the longer I stayed attached to the idea of being a full-time performer, and not only do I know what I want to do, I also know what shape it should take. The longer I stayed attached to that, the less money I made, weirdly, because I was doing it to make myself money. And I was wondering why I wasn't making all that much money. Sure, I was on tour. I was getting to see all these places, but I wasn't really, my bank account wasn't all that great. Got my car repossessed twice. <laughs> so when I, when I ignored all the ways I could put what I do in service of a larger vision, when my wildest dream to be a, a mentalist when I put that dream into a bigger dream is when my dream started coming true, putting my skills to use, making an even bigger goal a reality. So if you have this wild ambition and it's your all-consuming ambition, figure out a way to make that the smallest part of an even bigger mission and it'll be easier to make that thing happen. And then the second detail of you don't know how it's going to wind up. When I was 13, I would juggle fire on the sidewalk. I would draw a crowd full of people. Then I would do a 10-minute magic show to entertain people. And then I would pass my hat where people would throw dollars in. 
at the end. And that's how I made party money. Okay. 20 years later, I have a trade show consulting company where I stand in their booth. I draw a crowd. I do a 10 minute show that delivers the messaging of my clients so that anybody in the crowd goes, I, that's why I'm here. I need these guys. And then I pass the hat off to the sales team. And now that helps my client get two to four times as many conversations out of their time at the trade show with just one extra person there. Mm. So it's exactly the same thing that I was doing. I was 13 years old. I'm 39 years old now. And that's one of the ways that I make the most money is being that street performer in a booth in service of a larger vision of helping that company. Amazing. Okay, so where do people find you for all this information? If you're listening to this, the best place to go is ICanReadMinds.com. That's my hub website that's easy to stay, easy to hear, difficult to misspell. So go to ICanReadMinds.com. But if you're seeing this on YouTube or, or on a computer, click on the link to my portfolio site, which is JonathanPritchard.me. Nobody knows how to spell Jonathan. Nobody knows how to spell Pritchard. Everybody will spell it .com, which I used to have and let it go. And then it got, it got scooped up and somebody wants to sell it back to me for $10,000. And I'm like, thank you, but no, thank you. So yeah, JonathanPritchard.me is my hub. And I'm most active on Twitter. And I, I like posting on YouTube lessons from the road, from the stage, all that kind of stuff. So if you want the behind the scenes of how to become your own personal media company, how to make a living doing that weird thing you like doing, how do you sell it? How do you brand yourself? How do you rebrand awesome. yourself? Mm-hmm. All of that is what goes on my, my profile on YouTube. That's amazing because it's all about branding now. That's huge. That's so that's it. great. And you make it seem less scary. Uh, like again, for somebody like me, who's a little afraid of businessy stuff. I think your style it's, is really it's show welcoming. business. It's show right. business. And all the business people forget about the show and all the show folks forget about the business side. So I'm just trying to bring those two worlds together to help everybody understand it, it can be fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to, wow, you educated me. I learned a lot today. Thanks, Jonathan. Take care. (laughs) My pleasure. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening. I will see you next week.